Welcome back to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepard and thank you so much for clicking on another brand new episode. I do just want to say if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please get that done. It looks like there are quite a few people out there that haven't subscribed to the show but are listening to the new episode. So if you just could click on that subscribe button, that would be brilliant. And if you haven't rated the show five stars yet and you are enjoying it, please do do that on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review as well if you've got a little bit of time. This conversation you're about to hear again was recorded before any of the current measures came into place and it is with the brilliant Alex Staniforth. He is a record-breaking adventurer, endurance athlete, author and mental health advocate. In both 2015 and 17, he ventured to Nepal to take on Everest and ultimately both trips ended in tragedy. He's now inspiring others through his charity Mind Over Mountains and has done so many other incredible challenges as well. Alex Staniforth is on Why in the World. How are you, buddy? You good? Yeah, I'm. I'm really good. Yeah. You know, busy as we always are, but that um, that makes for a meaningful life. So it's uh, it's all good things. So you're you're living up in the lakes now, um, but you're back down in Cheshire, which is home for the uh, for the last week or so. Dog sitting and parrot sitting. So if you do hear a tweet or two, that is just uh, just the parrots in the background. Yeah, hopefully they'll keep it you know, polite today, not <laughs> too vulgar, not too much dog barking. But yeah, you know, I'm back home, home this week as such um it's quite flat around here it's always nice coming back but um i moved up in the edge of the lakes in kendall last uh, last march nearly a year ago which has given me lots of mountains and new places to run and explore really and, and fall over do you love the lakes yeah yeah the lakes has been a really um key part of my journey personally and that was why when i moved out of home it felt like uh, it was the only place i wanted to be mm. kendall's been very accessible for work but also just close enough to really make the you know make the most of the lakes and and i think to be able to to actually get in the hills in the morning and run and then get back in the office for nine is just the sort of lifestyle i've always dreamed of really mm. so uh it rains a lot but otherwise it's an amazing <laughs> place to be mate your story is incredible and um i think the easiest way to to cover this is kind of go from a to b in terms of chronological order so let's go back to uh when alex was running around little lad when did you first decide and when did you first kind of experience the outdoors and think, you know what, this is something I can get into here? How long have you got? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's important to go back before that just to kind of give, give some kind of context because when, I was never really the kid who, who did actually kind of run around and do adventures. I was never an outdoorsy or sporty kid at all. Well, when I was about eight or nine years old, I had epilepsy, which was quite a, a terrifying thing for a young person to actually experience. And that brought its own challenges you know you know of anxiety and panic attacks i've had a bad stammer uh, all my life which obviously makes day-to-day life difficult uh, badly bullied because of all this so no self-confidence you know no self-esteem um just a nervous wreck really who hated sport hated pe and you know believed he was born to fail and cut the long story short i found the outdoors pretty much by by chance when i was about 14. um Prior to that, I'd always enjoyed walking the dogs and, you know, being in the forest, being in nature. As I think as a child, I loved being outside and I loved exploring what I had on my doorstep. Very fortunate to have been brought up in the countryside. But in terms of actual sports, I started cycling to school every day at about sort of 13, 14, um, actually to escape the bullies in the school bus, funnily enough. <laughs> um, but then I never looked back, really. And 
The light bulb moment was when I was on holiday in Turkey when I was about 14 years old again. I saw something advertised called paragliding. Quite an extreme sport. Yeah, um, straight away going into paraglider. Yeah, you know, I guess you, you know you can either take small steps or take a leap, and I, <laughs> I, I chose a leap, um, quite literally off a off a seven thousand foot mountain in Turkey. I'd never been so scared in my life, mm. but that decision kind of made me realise that I could overcome so much more. You know, none none of this this stuff had to hold me back anymore, and I guess it changes that victim mindset to a victory mindset. You know, you you kind of become more scared of missing out on things than doing things in the first place and mm. so from then on I kept on realising I could challenge myself I could achieve more and I kept on finding new outdoor hobbies and new passions and it was well timed that the similar sort of time I went to Scotland to the Nevis and then to the Lakes when I was again about 14 and walking with a friend and his family in the Northern Fells I remember this one day near Blancafra and we're walking and I remember asking this question you know where is Mount Everest I'm not quite sure where that question came from either. But I got home, I researched it, you know, as you do, you kind of went on Google. And I came across this photo and it just captivated me. The whole idea of climbing Everest, the concept, it, it just became the biggest goal, the biggest thing to, to achieve, I guess, to, to prove myself and to prove all the bullies wrong that I'd dealt with. At that age, though, because you're still super young when you're Googling Everest and getting all these details... That's a very, very mature thing to be doing at that age. I think the adversity and the challenges that I faced at quite a young age okay. had probably made me more resilient, had made me more mature probably than perhaps my peers because I'd never, I never wanted to kind of follow the same track. I'd always wanted to be different. And I think I'd kind of been forced to be different because of the things I was facing. And whilst my friends were more interested in football and girls and the PlayStation, I was sort of sat there trying to stop a panic attack half the mm. time. And I think, yeah, it, it kind of came naturally. You know, these things tend to be a, be, a, be a kind of a chain of events that all work together. But um, but ultimately, at, at that young age, you know, at this kind of, you know, as this kind of naive 14-year-old, I remember saying to myself, you know, one day I'm going to climb Everest. I committed kind of half-heartedly, but I would never have imagined at that point that four years later I'd actually be at base camp about to make my first attempt. In between that, I picked up running, and I love to compete, racing sort of 5K up to half marathon, uh, getting kicked out of half marathons for being underage. Um, you know, kind of, you know, kind he of. He is 18, I promise. I'm 18 now, yeah. Um, <laughs> and just finding this passion for where it's just me versus, you know, the sport or the outdoors. You know, essentially nothing, nothing can hold me back there except myself. Is it about being totally in control? Because it's, it's when you're doing it, you're you're 100% in control of your own destiny, aren't you? It is control. And I think the confidence, when you are responsible for your own success, it's a massive boost. You know, and I no longer wanted to be in the crowd. I no longer wanted to, you know, to actually fit in anymore. I just had my, I had my own thing, my, my own focus. And incidentally, most of the, the low, you know, the low periods and the difficult times I've had has been when, is, is when I've been, you know, things have been out of my control. Mm. For example, the... About a year later, um, my, my first step towards Everest was Mont Blanc in the Alps when I was 17. Carrying the Olympic torch as well that year was a major boost. And then I got injured from, from running. And suddenly, this control, this escape was like whipped out of my feet, you know. And I, I literally couldn't cope. I had no sense of purpose, no focus. It was horrible, you know, not being able to do the thing that I love most and being told I'm able to train properly again, let alone one day climb the world's highest peak. That led to anxiety and depression, eating disorder, a whole host of things really. And it was probably the worst 
time of my life really um, and so that kind of led to kind of overcompensation and trying to get some control back which can cause some kind of more difficulties I couldn't cycle anymore couldn't really do, do anything um, but it's strange how we attach meaning in these things because in that kind of loss of kind of hope time mm. I needed something to, to, to kind of get me out you know I needed something to get me out better in the morning and I knew the final steps I had to kind of make to get to Everest in terms of fundraising and all that. So I kind of, I kind of decided to control, well, to focus on what I could control, which was the fundraising. I literally spent a full year working on that full time, on the gamble that I would get back to, you know, I'd get back to health and, you know, back to sport, which I did just, just in time, really. Because you've been through those times of injury, and you know that in those times you're more susceptible to maybe spiralling a little bit. Mm. Does that worry you? Yes, definitely. And I think there's been a number of periods in my life when I've had injuries, normally from running actually, which makes me now very, very cautious as an athlete because I don't want to go back there again. It's that case of trying to prevent and and plan ahead almost. And ultimately knowing that I haven't really got any backup plan, any mm. other, um, yeah, anything to take that place really. And as any runner will know, we tend to do all the rehab and the strength work when we're injured, not before. My life does tend to follow this peaks and troughs, one extreme, you know, the next mindset rather than kind of going along a smooth curve, which keeps life exciting. But I would, yeah, I'd rather be able to smooth out the curve a little bit. When you're in a trough, let's say, are you always now telling yourself, look, there's a peak to come? And when you're at a peak, are you saying, I don't know how long this peak's going to last? I'm going to... Great question. I think when I'm on the peak, generally... I don't worry too much about about the trough because everything's got to come come back down again. It's the the peaks that make the trough worthwhile. Um, mm. But there is also the the good the good part of that is I think as you say is that when you are struggling, you've got that past experience, you've got kind of that reference point of knowing you've been through the worst, you can get through it again. You've got the resources in you somewhere to get through that. The, the difficulties when you're in an experience that you've not been in before, and that's when on challenges I've had my kind of mental breakdowns because I've just been pushed beyond that bar and mm. this I think is the power of the outdoors is you raise that bar you become so much more resilient that in everyday life and it, other things it takes so much more to break you and I really love being on the edge of that trying to discover that and, and then especially at the time it might be hellish but to look back at it and and that's what you, you where you learn the most and you enjoy the most in hindsight is is being able to look back at these type two fun moments and adventures and how you found a way through obviously when you're in the moment it's very difficult to see that you know mm. you're, you're just focusing on that um, so there is always that sense of hope you know that you've just got to go endure it and um, having that mental resilience um, there's, there's no point worrying about what you can't control because yeah. so much of it is is unpredicted like an Everest I found was the perfect example of that really it's difficult but life's not meant to be easy so you mentioned the eating disorder as well. Mm. That must have been something very difficult to deal with as a young lad as well. Mm. And I think a lot of the time um, there's not the focus that maybe should be on uh, males and male body image. Mm. Um, how difficult was that to deal with? The hardest thing I've ever dealt with, actually. I think anxiety and depression are so much more commonly accepted and spoken about. And I think with men, there's this kind of awkwardness around eating disorders and food and um, the sense of weakness that it, you know this there's definitely a different stigma around that for me I think started as a control thing because you know like with everything else it's suddenly uh, 
you know, I found a way to, to cope through through sport. But when that coping mechanism is taken away, you know, it's like an alcoholic or, or you know, somebody else who uses that to kind of self-medicate. Mm. But the problem is, is we need food to survive. It's the same sort of process, but ultimately, um, I think the kind of high achieving mindset that I had, I think, from the bullying made me very self-critical, very much a perfectionist, which works well in training because you're very, you're very precise around the small details and you push yourself very, very hard but also your standards can be a bit unrealistic. And I think with the eating side of things, when I was injured, I tried to take control back there by you know cutting out these bad foods and following this strict athlete diet that I read about online, which I now know is very, very dangerous because it's got to be personal to you. And trying to match that and then failing, and then because I failed, that was when suddenly things went, went, you know, went wrong. And to be honest, six years later, well, no, eight years later, I've not really looked at food in the same way. You know, I've had NHS help, I've, you know, I've paid the help privately. Um, it's cost me an infinite amount in terms of time and stress and, and pain and, and energy. Um, even last year, after a big injury after Chester Marathon, um, it wasn't actually until I had this kind of moment when I'd had a really, really bad episode, I came back and then I won a 10K race, that you kind of realise that I had this, this realisation of how much better I ran when I actually gave myself what it needed mm. and that was my kind of my reason to change now I've still had a lot of difficult difficulties since but yeah you have those kind of moments when your body just fights back and and I think that was for me when I realized what I was doing to myself you know and it is very very difficult because people don't want to talk about them in the same way mm. which did make well for four years I didn't tell anybody about it you know I remember eventually realizing how much it was taking over my life and training and just um going to my gp and just breaking down crying like a, you know just like a baby but that was the best thing i could have done because now i'm able to do that and speak about it openly now you know mm. on air and in my book and but it's still an everyday challenge and i think as runners or as athletes we have that thing of people say oh you, you know you know i can eat anything i want because of this and i burn calories and what i've realized and what i think is the common agenda now is that exercise and calories shouldn't be an equation you know we, you know, we don't earn calories it should be a it, that's not a healthy relationship to have let's talk about the journey to Everest then we've mentioned mm. already Mont Blanc um, mm. which you did uh, at a very young age actually which was uh, a pretty amazing achievement when you got up there for the first time and you uh, you looked down mm. what did that feel like incredible I mean it was the first big achievement I'd, I'd ever you know I'd really had and it all went so brilliantly well. Mm. Um, I actually did it dressed as an orangutan. Of course you did. Raising money for an orangutan charity. Because why not? <laughs> well, there was a guy this week who finished his um, John O'Groves running speedos. It, it works. Speedo mech. You know, £300,000. It's phenomenal. Um, it, but being up there at sunrise, catching sunrise in the mountains has always been a magical thing to me. And even in the lakes, just fell running at sunrise is, it, it's just spiritual. It really is incredible. And yeah, it just raised my confidence to do even more and more and more. I mean, obviously, then I got injured, so that was part of the anticlimax, really. But it's a buzz, like nothing else, and I think it's it's why it's why we do these things. You know, mm. that that kick, that fix we get is like nothing else that we get in everyday life. Um, I guess the challenge is that we have to enjoy the journey because if it's all about that moment of, of glory, it doesn't last very long. You need mm. to be able to enjoy the process. You also, I think, if you are just doing it for that moment of glory, maybe doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and I'll admit that I think that was me for a long time. Um, I think moving away from Everest and the mountains was was part of kind of accepting that if we're always chasing that next big goal, we're never going to quite be happy with ourselves because we're always going to want more. Mm. You know, you're, you're going to get that fix, and it's like an addiction. You know, you've got to get something more. And 
how far, how high, you know, do you go? So yeah, it, it's interesting about in terms of what actually motivates us. But in those early days, it was just about setting bigger challenges, and uh, yeah, it was just a, an amazing week in the Alps. You did go on following that and following the injury to raise the money and go uh, ultimately on two Everest attempts, mm. both of which didn't end obviously the way you wanted them to and actually ended in, in tragedy. Mm. Just talk us through both of the attempts um, on Everest yeah. and, and what happened. I was very, well, I would say very, very fortunate. People might say unlucky, um, but 2014 uh, was my first attempt when I was about 18. I was on a team led by uh, Tim Mosdale, who's based in Keswick, who was my first climbing instructor, the, the person that really inspired me to take those steps towards Everest. And we'd flown into, uh, well, we'd flown into uh, Lukla, uh, started the track to base camp, which takes about three weeks. Everything was going really well. You know, I dedicated probably 18 months after leaving sixth form to working on this full time. I was pretty much working on it full time at sixth form instead of doing my A level. Mm-hmm. Um, Trying to raise sort of thirty, I think about thirty-five thousand pounds. So much money. Um, unfortunately, people believed in me. They got the support that I needed. You know, which, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know how that happened. Really, um, failure was never an option. It was a case of every single day sending emails to companies and knowing that I may not get there. But if you don't believe in yourself one hundred percent, then you've, you're pretty much guaranteed to fail. And then to actually get to, to, to Nepal, which is one of the most incredible, magical places in the world, is just it is like being on a, on a whole new planet, really. Um, prior to Everest, I should say that I went out to try a 7,000 metre peak called uh, Burunsi, um, which was obviously training because to go from the Alps to Everest is obviously... Crazy well, altitude difference. It's more than, well, it's almost double the height. So I spent a month in Nepal. That in itself is mad, isn't it? That is double the height. Almost, yeah, almost. I mean, it, yeah, it gives you some perspective as to what you've kind of... It's like, what you know, have a bit of more than I can chew. So Brunsi and Merapeak spent a month climbing there just to acclimatise and to get experience at altitude, to know how my body, you know, coped uh, or didn't cope in my case. And, and you know, just to get that, that, that crucial high altitude experience. Um, so went out there for a month and then obviously went out to Everest in March 2014. So with this trip, we, we were on the track in and then a day before we got to base camp, there was um, a massive avalanche which killed 16 people. The biggest disaster in Everest history at the time. So, you know, obviously we had to pack up and go home without stepping a single foot on the mountain. And all that you know, time, effort, training had obviously gone. Now, obviously we have no right to complain. We're going home safe. You know, most importantly, we, you know, we were going back home safe and we had the chance to come back stronger. But naturally, you know, you're entitled to feel disappointed, a bit miffed at what what's happened. And I think I've been naive enough to think that by simply working hard enough, I could guarantee success. But actually, so much is outside your circle circle of control. And you kind of lose that fear of failure because you realise that ultimately failure is, is your response. Mm. You know, it's falling but getting back up again. That really changed it on its head because then I thought, okay, so how do I see this as an opportunity to, to come back? And I did a lot of fundraising for Nepal um, in that time off, did another year of more fundraising to raise the money all over again to go back. And then to get more experience doing endurance events, I think as you know, you know it's nine percent mental, only probably ten percent physical, especially on Everest. And so ultimately, I went back better prepared with a better appreciation for you know the goal I was trying to achieve. And then 2015, um, I flew out again, same team, same format. 
things went better this time, except um, we were well, we left base camp uh, about five o'clock one morning to go to camp one, which is the first of four camps below the summit. Because uh, you perform a number of um, acclimatization rotations where you're basically going up, increasing the height to adjust the body, then you descend to allow the body to recover rather than just going up, you know, in kind of a, um, an incremental stage. And it was our first trip up to Camp 1, um, so still fairly early days. And we were just below Camp 1 in the icefall when the earthquake hit Nepal. So we were at nearly 6,000 metres, nearly the height of Kili. And uh, that day happened to be one of, the, one of the bad days, you know, when it felt like I'd never been on a mountain in my life. You know, every step was just absolute agony, despite the training. That's just the way of altitude. Most of the team had already got to camp one you know they were a lot stronger a lot faster than me they raced well ahead and uh, I was on my own at this point my leader Tim and Ellis were about 10 minutes behind but the fog in the icefall was, was so thick that we couldn't really see more than a few hundred meters away the icefall is probably the most dangerous part of the entire route because you've got you know house-sized blocks that can topple at any moment you've got seracs you've got crevasses in the ground as with any event you have to focus on one step at a time mm. and um, I was so exhausted that I didn't actually feel the ground shaking. You know, I didn't feel the earthquake. I just remember this huge crack above my head, which was the sound of ice breaking off the mountain. And they said a big avalanche coming straight towards us. Now, panic set in, you know, at the time trying to trying to walk is hard enough, never mind trying to run. But all the time this noise was getting louder and faster and louder and faster and then all of a sudden it just hit us with this whack. It was like a snow cannon, you know, just couldn't breathe. It was this suffocating, freezing cold air, deafening blast of wind, this white everywhere we look. And at 19, for the first time, I'm thinking, um, you know, this is it. And um, there's nothing I can do. You know, you are completely out of control. Any second now, you know, the ice is going to follow and bury me. And um, all you can do is stand and take it. And I think for the first time, that genuine feeling of, of fear pure fear hmm. that you've never felt before and it's kind of sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach really but it all happens so fast and then it just kept coming and knocking us over knocking us over but then it just stopped you know the mountain went silent the snow fell to the ground and I'm like oh I'm still here <laughs> I can't believe it you know miraculously we'd just been hit by a big blast of powder snow you know it wasn't an avalanche that you may know with the ice and the debris that that never came we just got hit by this big blast of powder but uh, at the time obviously you only assume the worst so we got to camp one um luckily all of us were uh, you, know, you know all unharmed but we're now trapped on the mountain for two days at six thousand meters every half an hour we've got aftershocks avalanches from both sides the route to base camp's gone we're told we'll be there for a week we've only got food for a day um the helicopter was our only way out Got back to base camp to then realise that that had been hit by a much bigger avalanche triggered by the earthquake. Um, three of our team had sadly died that morning. You know, breakfast was the last time we'd ever see them. And um, spent a few days in Nepal before walking out and seeing a country just devastated and then flying back home. So yeah, it didn't quite go to plan. Coming home from from two trips that I bet almost feel like one big journey, like two years of your life that is kind mm. of one journey. Yeah in one segment if you will and you've lost so many people that you know and have spent a lot of time with did you struggle with that? I should say you know really that 
they weren't people that I, I knew necessarily well, but you still feel a connection to them. And and also everybody that died at base camp. That's a lot of them are other climbers just like me that were there to live their dream. And there was that bittersweet feeling of like not wanting to really be anywhere. You know, I, I, there was that guilt, that sense of why them, why not me? And especially at a young age, you know, having to deal with all this. Um, in the moment you go into kind of survival mode, you know, it didn't hit me until I got home. And that's when it just hit, hit me out of the blue and I just broke down. Mm. And it was a friend who'd been in the army that really got through to me because he was the only one who really experienced anything like it. You know, base camp was like a war zone. You know, everything just gone, you know, just scattered everywhere from the from the wind and things like that. And the sights that we saw, I didn't see half of what some people saw. I was very, very lucky because we, we'd missed most of that upper camp one. Uh, but what we saw was bad enough. And you get home and it, there is that over sense of guilt and that sense of, you know, they were just doing their jobs, you know, this wasn't meant to happen. You know, base camp is meant to be the safest place to be, but mm. actually being on the mountain had saved us. Had we not left base camp that morning, most of our team would probably not be here or would be quite badly injured. In hindsight, yeah, it does it does hit you. And I think I didn't really deal with it properly. You know, Rich, my friend who'd been in the army, he, he sort of said, you know, you've got to grow from it because otherwise it'll grow on you. Mm. And that's when, I'm like every challenge in life, it was the same process. I just had to find a new purpose in, in you know, in giving something back because there was this sense of, you know, my life's been spared, so I need to make the most of it. I need to achieve as much as I can, be the best I can be and live my dreams for, for the people that lost theirs, you know, on the mountain that day. In hindsight, that was probably a distraction, you know, and I think mentally it's certainly fed into a lot of low periods since without realising. But I think by throwing myself into positive, something positive, you know, with the, all, all the fundraising and, and a new challenges was the only way I could really deal with that. You talk about purpose and new challenges from coming home from Nepal uh, after those two Everest trips. What were the challenges and what was the new purpose? Well, it was still a very difficult few months. And I think it hit me at the end of Christmas when all that died down. I've always been very much spontaneous. So I just tend to throw myself in and learn how to do it later. Um, (laughs) And the first paragliding yeah one of them um the first one was well starting my first book which was meant to happen anyway but then took on a very different story so ice fall became a a focus i moved and lived in the lakes for a couple couple months working at a hostel just to get me into my happy place you know to get away from home so i was doing a lot a lot of cycling and then that summer i i did everesting on a bike which is basically when you cycle the equivalent height of everest in a day so 29,000 feet of vertical ascent so I trained for that and being in the lakes was ideal because on my, on my split shifts so I'd just be cycling reps of Kirkstone Pass um, <laughs> so I did that in, in August which raised a few thousand for uh, the Himalayan Trust did a lot of talks and speaking events which were based on you know trying to raise money for you know actually for the earthquake victims started setting up a, an event called Walk for Nepal which was um, well, we, we, which then happened the following spring on the anniversary of the earthquake on Snowden where we had 150 people on Snowden um climbing, you know, on the anniversary of the earthquake. And that raised about £20,000 for a charity called FaZe who work in very isolated parts. It was a case of, you know, you can whinge about it and complain about how unfair it was and this shouldn't have happened or you just get on and you just throw yourself into something and create something from it. But it was when those things died down that I really hit the low points. The book was done, you know, and that was kind of therapeutic writing about it. But in the first few weeks, I couldn't talk about it. You know, I, I, I remember doing a talk to my sponsors and everybody in the boardroom 
heard me speak many times before, you know, everyone in the business knew the story. I remember just sitting down and just, I, I just couldn't speak. I just had to actually sit down and just couldn't get a word out because of the emotion. The emotion of it nearly finished my speaking career because my stammer is always very temperamental anyway when I'm speaking on stage. And normally I can be perfectly fluent, whereas on the phone or one-to-one, I, I massively struggle with mm. you know, my speech. But because it was so raw, I had so many talks when I just completely got blocked and couldn't talk. And I was, I was on stage with that awkward silence, can't get a word out, people give me the funny looks. I had a run of those and I was so frustrated that I nearly just binned the whole thing. I said, I'm not doing any more talks. What really changed it from there? I mean, it's not really kind of a challenge, you know, in the sporting sense, but I had one talk to a load of young footballers at the FA and I got up there and I was terrified of my stammer kind of going again. I think it was because it was so uh, emotionally raw, this trauma. And I got up, got, got up there and I'd been so close the night before to sending a sick note. I had a sick note saved in my email in, uh, draft inbox. And I went and did it. I thought, no, I don't give up I, because I thought of those guys. And I think that for me now is what drives me to, to push myself is that sense of, you know, I've had this chance. Mm. And I went and did it. But the first few seconds, there was a complete block. I couldn't get a single word out. And I nearly walked, walked out. And I just had this kind of mirage, this kind of vision from somewhere. I don't know what it was, but it just took over me. And I just delivered probably the best talk I'd ever given because everything went into it. I remember picturing the guys from Everest on the front row. Something about that just took over me. I got, not a standing ovation, but probably the best response I'd ever had to a talk, even five years later. Mm. And that saved me, really. And so I guess from then on, um, I mean, I could say so much, but <laughs> I went. I started training for another expedition, uh, Choeu in Tibet, which I went the following October 2016, so nearly a year and a half later. That was the aim of doing something to almost put Everest to bed whilst having the, the best possible chance of getting above 8,000 metres. I still wanted to go back to Everest at this point. I was never put off because I knew what happened was just one of those chance events. But I wanted to take a different approach to it. So I, I trained all summer for Choeu, got back in running because I'd not ran for many years because I was so scared of you know the injury risk. I couldn't, I couldn't obviously risk an injury before Everest and all that money. So I, I just cycled everywhere. Um, but I got back, back in running, was in probably the best shape of my life for Choeu, still didn't summit, got to 7,200 metres, which is my high, which is my highest point. Um, but again, it's the altitude. And even at a fairly young age, um, my body's never been able, it's, it's just never liked altitude, it's never acclimatised. What is the feeling? For someone that's never experienced altitude, what is the feeling when you're there and you're like, why, why am I not working? It's frustrating and it is that sense of, you know, why? Because I was the youngest on the team and without being big-headed, I probably trained and pushed myself more than anybody in terms of, you know, endurance and, you know, heart rate and, you know, my kind of, you know, you know my VO2 max score and everything else was all, all suggested that I should have done the best. But actually, um, as altitude, you know, it, it doesn't matter how young, how fit you are. And the feeling is just a discomfort, a pain that you can't just describe. It's just sickness, it's nausea. It's it's like the final mile of a ma- mile of a marathon, but extended for a full day. It's the best day. It's it really is hellish, and it's frustrating because yeah, like the guy on my team um, who summited, he was my tent mate most of the way up. He didn't really do any training, other than cycling to work every day and doing a few weights. He was an ex rugby player, so he was naturally strong. Whereas I have no strength. I'm just built lean and built as a runner and nothing else. You know, I'm hopeless in the gym. 
he just had the right mindset. He was very unflappable, very flexible, very relaxed. And he went the entire trip without a single headache. Yeah, I was got to base camp, which isn't, you know, it's only 5,400 and was very nearly evacuated with high altitude cerebral edema, which is quite a serious altitude yeah. in illness. And um, my my blood oxygen was 54%, um, which is quite serious. It's not good. It's definitely not good. And it suggested why I felt so bad. And so I thought that was it again. You know, I hadn't even got to our main base camp at this point. And and yeah, it it, it does take the make when you've you put all that work in, but this is the nature of of altitude. You've got to focus on what you can control. Mm. But all it meant was I needed more time. And so well went down and then, then I recovered and went back up and then ended up reaching seven thousand two hundred and then on summit night at camp two, um I got ill again. Again, I think it was probably haste. I had to, you know, I had no choice but to go down because at that altitude, you know, it can quite quickly deteriorate. Henry, our base camp manager, was saying about, you know, have I considered taking up sailing instead? <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, it was tempting. Um, what about knitting? Well, yeah, my mum would be pleased with that. But I think that was when I had this realization that actually, what's this all about? Why? Well, you know, why in the world am I here? Why am I up this up on this mountain, halfway across the world in a tent? at 7,000 metres, you know, am I really making the biggest difference? And had I been in that tent the year before, what would I have left behind? And a sense of not really wanting it anymore. Like, actually the journey had given me so much more and taught me so much more that I wanted to do something close to home. And that's kind of when I've comfortably moved away from Everest and a high altitude, just realising I've been climbing the wrong mountain. You know, I don't regret that. It's just um, led me to a new Everest, really. Mm. I love this challenge. I love the one we're about to talk about, the one here in the UK. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. I think it's fantastic. For people that don't know about it, just give us the name and explain exactly what it was. So Climb the UK was, um, yeah, my, my, my last big challenge in 2017, which involved climbing to the highest point of all 100 UK counties, uh, walking, running, cycling, kayaking, 5,000 miles in 72 days. And that was fundraising for Young Minds, which is the leading charity for mental health and young people. How did you come up with this idea? <laughs> I think, as you know, you, you kind of, you realise you need a new challenge and, and there's something in life that's not quite being fulfilled. And um, I want to do something close to home to experience what's on our home soil. Um, something where the only real thing against me was myself. You know, there was no avalanches or no objective factors, really. And I'd, I'd heard of a, a British girl called uh, Elise Downing who'd run around the coast of the she UK. She was on the first episode of the podcast. No, well, that's, yeah. Episode number one. I didn't actually know that, but that's uncanny. Um, <laughs> and Elise, I'd seen her doing her challenge and just the way she was engaging people, people were joining her. She was getting to experience the highs and the lows of the UK and with such a positive attitude. And I thought, wow, what if I could create something similar and, and, and see more of my home country? And so Elise was my biggest inspiration. And so she actually endorsed my second book. So um, obviously that was, you know, a real honour for me. Mm. So it's like you come up with a criteria. Okay, well, it's got to be this. It's not, not to, you know, it's not to do this. It needs to play to your strengths. And running and, and cycling have always been my main things. And I didn't want to do something conventional, you know, like a, a race or something. I wanted to do something where you kind of, it's a bit different because everybody's doing big challenges nowadays. And it's hard to find something that's kind of a bit different. It's this kind of research, innovation, entrepreneurial type process where you're looking for something to tick the boxes and it takes a while and you kind of toy with ideas and you might mention it, you know, well, generally I, I kind of a close circle of friends and mentors and I'd put the ideas past them and then I'd get excited and then I'd realise, well, yeah, it's not quite right. Or, and then eventually something just sticks mm. and then you get this sudden goosebumpy feeling that I've had with Everest and that's it, that's it. 
But it took months and months and months to get to that point. And I got to the point of, is it ever going to come again? Am I ever going to find this passion for challenges again? And then the county idea, originally I dismissed it. I didn't think it'd be hard enough because I thought, well, realistically, it's not a lot of mountains involved. It's just a really long cycle. Then you toy around with it and you work out the, you know, the why. And I remember having a coffee with a friend and then talking about this challenge and what the ending would, what the finish would look like. And as I was describing it, all these goosebumps started on my arm. And he saw me kind of looking a bit like in a day, he said, that's your why. Mm. And that was it. And that was, that was, once I commit, I'm on it, you know. Um, and so that was when all the planning started. And then I realized that only one other guy had really done it, uh, Johnny Muir, who then actually did a brilliant book last year, uh, to the year before, called The Mountains of Calling, uh, which I did a forward for. And so I only really had him to follow, you know. So I did a lot of my own, my own research, which was a really enjoyable process very confusing trying to define what a county is in Wales and Scotland and, and England we all have different ideas I had about four or five months of planning um, and fundraising and then it kicked off and what an amazing experience mm, how was the body throughout it? the hardest thing I'd done yeah because it's not obviously you haven't got the altitude on Everest you spend a lot of time in your tent eating biscuits on this is that day to day grind as you know it just eventually your body can only take so much it taught me a lot actually I learned some interesting things and how resilient the body can be and how it really is about having that steering wheel you know mm. um, I had a few setbacks I mean day five I tore a muscle in my quad um, so early to get an injury yeah and it was looking unlikely actually and I just had to push through the pain for sort of two three weeks but somehow it kind of strengthened itself you know and that's what made me realise just what we are capable of yeah um, but it's our day to day endurance with very few rest days if any the weather was probably the hardest thing because I wasn't as equipped as I should have been but you kind of get in this trance where you just keep on pushing through mm. it rather than kind of trying to address it. And then I came down with a chest infection in Scotland about two weeks later. Luckily, my friend Richard stepped in and he was there for, well, the, the two or three days I was coming in the Cairngorms, he was there, which was um, a saviour really, just having a friend there with hot food and hot, hot drinks and a, just allowing me to sleep in his car rather than my tent in a sleeping bag um, when I was shivering and aching all over, you know, makes a difference. Mm. Um and as you know, when you go in these dark places, these little things go a long way. But by the end of it, I mean, I'd lost my appetite. I lost, uh, I think I lost about a stone in weight. And I, ironically, from an eating disorder perspective, actually made things a lot worse. Um, I couldn't keep up the fuel day to day. You know, I wasn't able to, to t- take on enough. And I didn't have a good, a good enough plan in place for that. And the day before we finished, I'd fallen behind schedule with hyperthermia. I'm sorry to say it, uh, it was in Wales. It was yeah. so wet and cold. I'm not surprised. I'm very Welsh, but I, <laughs> I'll accept it. It was in Bala, um, and it was just relentless rain. And I got hypothermic because I was I was lost so much weight. I couldn't stay warm. Um, I was in this cafe in Bala, trying to cling to a heater on the phone to ITV Granada reports, just like trying to stay there, trying to get as much warm food in me as I could buying a new coat I was that cold and that meant I fell behind schedule and then the following day having to get up at 3.30 in the morning 108 miles on the bike a holiday mountain in Anglesey and Snowdon 18 hours I think about 10,000 feet of climbing just to catch up so doing that on, on the bike it's when you really learn so much about yourself and when your body gets into that trance it will just accept what it needs to do mm. there were many moments of the challenge when I'm especially in Scotland when I'm just breaking down literally on the mountain on my own and it pushed me over the edge and I just sat there and cried and when you get to that point it's quite quite amusing really when you you have no choice but to get yourself back on your feet but that final day got to Snowdon and you know luckily my friends and sponsors were there 
and I literally got to um, the Royal Victoria Hotel in Lamberis and literally the weight of the bike I just kind of toppled sideways just fell just literally f- fell on a heap on the floor coming down Snowden I couldn't I couldn't speak to anybody I was in that that exhausted that I just you know I was, I was actually walking on the spot on that first stage of the Lamberis Pass which is so steep I was literally physically not walking forwards so that, that was fun yeah that was exciting um, <laughs> But it took me about a month, maybe six weeks to recover from that, just because the exhaustion, that day-to-day thing was like nothing I'd done. But the feeling, the buzz was was like nothing I'd had before. You know, to be in those last few hours when you just got to get it done, you, 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 your body will take anything. Um, not being able to eat anything other than a box of cheese. Um, and then to come home and have a roast dinner and just sit there and just think, I don't have to go anywhere on the bike tomorrow. This is great, you know. It was incredible. I was thinking about like day number 37. You've had 37 days and you've done it and you've still got loads and loads of days left, like just under 30 days left. And you must be like, like this is never ending. It's not like a five-day challenge where day number two is a bit hard and day number three is a bit hard, but by number day number four, you know that it's nearly done. It's like in a marathon, you know, you've also got this kind of reference points, mm. um, is a word. Um you know, when you because by, by then you've probably done a half marathon. So when you've done a half marathon, oh, you know, I'm halfway now. I've only got to do another half marathon. But that was the biggest challenge and the biggest testing point for me was that sense of 72 days on the go. And I actually managed to finish bang on my schedule, which was through grit and a lot of pain. But there was no way I was going all that way to not finish on schedule. Yes. And I got, I think I left Lamberis about five in the morning, got to Mulbama, which is my final peak, to a big crowd of sponsors and friends and family and and just people that have been inspired by the journey really to be, be there on the top and the moment was everything I pictured it would be it was just everything you had good weather for it as well it was actually for Mulvama it was a blue sky <laughs> sunny day and to stand up there with a, a Union Jet flag with a big banner there and to actually hit the target was just uh, something else but but before all that you have got that, that pressure and you need to be able to segment it and the breakdowns I had were when I let myself get too 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 fixated on. I've got another forty, you know, I've got another forty days still to go, and that's when it all gets too much. And you you have so much time on your own on the bike to to come up with these things. And so some of the kind of strategies I had were were those sort of small chunks. And quite literally, even like having say, you know, I'd have a pack of fudge in my pack, and for every k that I walked on a hill when it was blowing a hooli, I'd have a piece. So I'm not thinking I've got another ten miles to go. And can actually, well, I'm always working towards a smaller number. It's fudge time. Yeah, and it's, it, it could be fudge, it could be flapjack, it could even be, okay, I'll check my phone or I'll have a drink or I'll listen to songs when I get to there or to there. When you do that, suddenly, before you know it, you're actually at the smaller number. Mm. Oh, actually, I can do this. Even in those final hours, you go in this kind of trance. Um, I always think someone should write a book called Endurance Mind Games where it's just basically a list of games that people play with themselves while they're doing endurance <laughs> challenges <laughs> the it's main, like what's 3 plus 4 and if you then divide that by and you just come up with random sums and you're trying to work out times and you're I remember doing a, a marathon once and uh, it was the end of an Ironman and I was trying to work out to get a time what minute mile pace was mm. I going to have to do it my watch had died and so the GPS wasn't working, but if it, it still Strava, had, right? No. <laughs> it still had uh, it still had the clock face, so I could still have the clock face. But I knew if I put the GPS on, it was going to die basically. So I could see what time it was, but the GPS there wasn't enough battery to run it. So I was trying to work out the minute per mile pace just by like counting the time. But then by the time I'd done that, by the time I worked it out, I was like, well, I got six miles to go now. It's all good. 
So I know some athletes, and I was listening to a great podcast um, by Sharon Gator, who got the John Groves Land's End best time uh, mm-hmm. recently. Well, I think it was a little last summer. And she likes to speak about how she likes to be completely focused. But for me, I like the distractions sometimes. Mm. And those mind games, it is bizarre where our heads go to remember under this pressure. But I think that's why we probably enjoy it because it's so far out of our everyday lives. And I think it's hard to get that same fix from everyday life when you're, when you're used to doing the, these things. But the buzz, the, the, the kick of achieving something that I'd finally set out to do, you know, without, you know, a disaster or tragedy. And although they were outside of my, my, you know, they were because of factors outside of my hands. Um, just the ability to actually set a goal and actually see it through was just the biggest, the biggest boost. And it lasted for a few weeks. It's strange that you almost get very, you get very single-minded that people ask me to do things or go somewhere and I'd be saying, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just, just, just want to stop. I don't want to do anything you're so used to forcing yourself every day to doing and doing and doing and doing and going and going and then the slightest thing you just get very defensive so I just wanted to do nothing but to sleep I was I slept like a horse but it is interesting where the mind goes I mean sometimes you're talking to sheep just to pass the time oh yeah um, singing out loud uh, me and my friend were uh, rich singing out to the uh, proclaimers I'm going to be 500 miles and <laughs> um, and that's that's, that's that's the joy of it you yeah. know, that's what, that, that's what these, these things are great and you get that in, in it in all events and sports and challenges and, and yeah that's what that's the adventure is about it's the things you remember it's the things that it's those little memories and those silly little things that happen and you're mm. like oh dear that, that's class and you look back at it and you think that was really good that those memories to me is what it's all about and that's what I love talking about now mm. and um, I think to be honest the fondest memories are when the things don't go, go to plan because there's no adventure in, certain to, you know, in a certain outcome and yeah I love sharing those and those stories and you've given people a different perspective I mean for example I had a lady in Scotland who was trying to you know she was trying to follow me to give me these um, this pack of homemade flapjacks so she'd followed my life tracker but then that's when I had the chest infection so I had to, I had to t- take a rest day in Stirling and she'd come that morning just as I set off to try and catch up on uh, catch up on my schedule missed me by, by, by about five minutes got in a car followed my live tracker of course there's no signal there so she couldn't find me in the first walk of the day so she then drove to, to the second walk on the map then the signal dropped out couldn't find me again so she gave up and then I had to change my whole route because of, you know I had to literally knock, knock off some distance to get just to get kind of back on track um, because otherwise then you've got everything else falls apart you know trips and all you know all the hotels and the hostels they booked everything starts to fall apart so she, she then posted these flapjacks to another another YHA hostel in York sorry in uh, in Yorkshire in Beverly Friary but I, I then had to go completely past it to stay in York instead just to catch up on mileage so I had no idea that I'd just bypass this pack of flapjacks after a 110 mile day into Cambridge two weeks later I remember arriving there there was this parcel in my room in the YHA in Cambridge and this pack of flapjacks and a £20 donation. And it said in the back, go posty, go. Um, this boy's in a mission, don't be slow. And I've never had a flapjack stalker before. Um, <laughs> but those things just bring out the best in people. And the, the, the best part about a UK adventure is you realise what we have on our home soil that mm. many people don't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate. And so many surprises around every corner. You know, the highest point of Kent was in somebody's back garden. You know, getting changed in a phone box in the middle of nowhere because there's it's just these little moments. Um, and I would really urge more people to go out there and enjoy that.
Again, a big thank you to Alex for coming on and just such an honest conversation from him. I did really, really appreciate him opening up and he's just a really, really good guy. Uh, make sure you do go and follow Alex's channels on social media and I would recommend his book as well if you have not read that yet. We'll be back again in another couple of weeks with a brand new episode of Why in the World that might be slightly different. So keep an eye on our Instagram account at Why in the World Pod for that. Until then, stay safe and well and we'll catch you in a bit.